In May of 2010, not long before I began working at Eastminster Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, I was still in seminary at the time, and so I traveled with a group of my seminary students to the Holy Land. I took a 15-day trip to Israel and to Egypt before it got crazy in Egypt. In fact, it was six months prior to Mubarak's ousting there. And for 15 days, I got to walk where Jesus walked. I had never been there before. And so it was quite an amazing trip for me uh, to be able to be there and to see the things that I read about in the Scriptures and to be able to experience them firsthand. This picture that you see before you is a picture of me, but it's a picture of me on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The sea in which Jesus taught in a boat from, the sea in which the disciples fished from, the sea in which Jesus walked on water. And I have to tell you, being there on that sea made the very hairs on my arm stand straight up because there was no question that this was the place where Jesus had been. Now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, the Holy Land can be much like Disney World. There's always a church that's been placed over a supposed site where Jesus has been, and they say, this is the holy site where Jesus did this. It's neat to see, but after a while, it can become kind of, I don't know, modern and not real. This is a picture of me at the Jordan River where Uh, The Jordan River begins where the springs are beautiful and clear, not the murky waters that Jesus baptized John in on the south end of Israel. And the next photo is a picture of Capernaum there on the hill from the Sea of Galilee and where Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He gathered with over 5,000 people and he spoke to them. I walked where Jesus walked. I even went to Bethlehem and I saw the supposed place where Jesus was born and the star that marks it to this very day. I even went to Jerusalem and I saw the crucifixion site. And while I was there in Jerusalem, I went to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where Jesus was betrayed by Judas and was arrested before he was crucified. It was an incredible trip of a lifetime that I will never forget. However, despite being in the very places where Jesus visited and taught, I have to tell you that I did not find Jesus there. I looked for him, but I did not see him there. And as we stopped from place to place, we would open up our Bibles and we would read the scriptures that provided context to where we were and what Jesus had done in those places. And there was a moment in the middle of this trip that I realized that I had been looking for Jesus where Jesus was, but not where Jesus is. I had been looking for Jesus where he was, but not where he is. You see, there's no doubt that Jesus lived there, but now Jesus lives through the words of Scripture that we read from our Bibles. And I'm reminded from Scripture that Jesus says that he is the great I am, not the great I was. That Jesus is living in the present tense as he declares to us in Revelation 1.8 saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Jesus does not tell us that he was, is, and is to come. 
but that He is and was and is to come. Jesus lives, and because He lives, we too live. And the truth is that Jesus lives in the present. And so the question still remains, where do we find Him? Where do we find Him? And I believe that Jesus answers this question for us near the end of Matthew's Gospels. He's been sharing three differing parables that speak of the importance of being alert and waiting for his glorious return. We know them as the parable of the thief in the night, the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents. And all of these parables deal with accountability and judgment, which sets up Jesus' words on the final judgment from our text this morning. This second advent, Jesus' return, it will take place one day. And when it does, all of the angels from heaven will gather with him as he sits on his glorious throne. All the nations, it says, will be gathered before him and he will begin to separate the people, some to his right and some to his left. He will not separate the rich from the poor, He will not separate the educated from the uneducated or the noble from the despised. Rather, it says that he will separate the godly from the ungodly. The good shepherd will determine his sheep. Those who are godly, separated from the goats, those who are ungodly, And he will separate them based on what they have done or what they have not done. Now there are some who argue that the word nations here suggests the Gentiles only. But I believe that Jesus is speaking of everyone, of both Jews and Gentiles. You see, Jesus gives us this vision of the end. His final coming in glory. His authority to welcome those who have followed his commands and to banish those who have failed to do so. As Jesus continues to share this vision with all who hear him, and even now with us, he tells us exactly where we can find him. Listen to his words once more. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Jesus tells his sheep, that they gave him food and water, that they invited him into their homes, that they had given him clothes to wear, that they looked after him when he was sick and even visited him when he was in prison. But his sheep have no idea what he is talking about. And so they ask him, Lord, when did we see you? He says to them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, You did for me. For me. 
Secular singer Joan Osborne sang a hit song back in 1995 that got all the way up to number four on the charts entitled One of Us. It's a song about God. And the song's chorus goes like this. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. What if God was one of us? And the second verse goes, if God had a face, what would it look like? There's some irony to this song because we know that God is one of us. That God has come in the flesh as one of us in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus himself is the visible image of the invisible God. That is what John tells us in his gospel saying, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he goes on to say that we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who comes to us full of grace and truth. But the question remains, where do we find him? Well, Luke reminds us that Jesus wasn't born in a hospital or even in a hotel room. Once born, he wasn't wrapped in fine linens and laid in the crib built by his father Joseph, but in bands of cloth and laid in a feeding trough for animals. Jesus was not born to a royal family, although his lineage connects him to one. And his earthly mother, Mary, she was an outcast and was considered unfaithful to God by her peers for getting pregnant before she even got married to Joseph. Jesus' birth announcement was not addressed to the king of Israel, nor to the king of Rome, rather to the least. Shepherds watching their flocks in a nearby field. Jesus did not grow up in a wealthy home, nor was he made king of Israel to rule and to lead. Instead, he grew up in Nazareth. Philip asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? A poor peasant town. And he grew up and began leading this small group of ragamuffins around Galilee and Jerusalem with no permanent place to lay his head. You see, if you wanted to find Jesus, you would find him eating with sinners. You would find him with the outcast and the destitute, the poor and the sick, the forgotten, the marginalized, the demon-possessed. You would find Jesus visiting prostitutes and even tax collectors. You see, Jesus is always found with the least by the world's standards. It reminds me of this movie called Bruce Almighty. I shared it with you a couple of weeks ago when we talked about finding Emmanuel, and I showed you a video clip about how Bruce had asked God to give him a sign, and he gave him a whole truckload of signs, and then he wrecked his car because he didn't pay attention to what God was trying to tell him. But for those of you who have not seen the movie, it's about a man named Bruce who's played by Jim Carrey who, who really thinks that God is out to get him and his whole life is just going uh, bad and so God meets him in the face of Morgan Freeman and he gives him his powers for a day and he says if you can do a better job than me then go for it before he gets these powers when everything's going terribly wrong he sees a homeless man who's getting beat up by a gang and he goes to help this man and in the process he ends up getting beat up himself which just makes everything that much worse 
But throughout this movie, this homeless man reappears over and over and over again. But Bruce is blind to the fact that this guy's even there uh, on his everyday kind of journey as, as having God's powers. And he stands there throughout the movie holding signs like this one that says, Are you blind? And as the movie goes on, you continue to see this man over and over and over again. And you see him in this image up close. But something happens at the end of the movie. And we begin to realize that the person that Bruce has not been paying attention to, who's been standing on the side of the road holding signs this whole time, is none other than God himself. Morgan Freeman, of course. You see... We want to find Jesus. We'll find him in the faces of those who are considered the least. See, even though Jesus speaks of being hungry or thirsty or being a stranger, naked, sick, and even in prison, I have to remind you that these examples that he gives us, they're illustrative, not exhaustive. So if you're looking for Emmanuel, you might find him in an everyday situation just like this woman who wrote an open letter of thanks. This is what she wrote. Dear strangers, I remember you. Eighteen months ago when my cell phone rang, you were walking into Whole Foods prepared to do your grocery shopping just as I had been only minutes before you. But I had already abandoned my cart full of groceries in the entryway. My brother was on the other end of the line telling me my father had taken his own life early that morning. I started to cry as my whole body trembled. I fell to the floor, my knees buckling under the weight of what I had just learned. You could have kept on walking, ignoring my cries, but you didn't. You could have simply stopped and stared at my primal display of pain, but you didn't. Instead, you surrounded me as I yelled through my sobs. My father killed himself. He's dead. I remember one of you asked for my phone and whom you should call. What was my password? You needed my husband's name as you searched through the contacts. I remember that I could hear your words as you tried to reach my husband for me, leaving an urgent message for him to call me. I recall you discussing among yourselves who would drive me home in my car and who would follow that person back to the store. You didn't even know one another, but it didn't matter. You encountered me, a stranger, in the worst moment of my life, and you coalesced around me with common purpose to help. In my fog, I told you that I had a friend who worked at Whole Foods, and one of you brought her to me. And I even recall as I sat with her, one of you sent over a gift card to Whole Foods. Though you didn't know me, you wanted to let me know that you would be thinking of me. This gift card helped to feed my family when the idea of cooking was so far beyond my emotional reach. I never saw you after that, but I know this to be true. Because you reached out to help, you offered a ray of light in the bleakest moment I've ever endured. You may not remember it. You may not remember me. But I will never, ever 
forget you. You see, if Jesus is telling us the truth, then finding Emmanuel is much easier than we think it is. If Jesus is really telling us the truth, we may even forget that we've encountered him. And if Jesus is really telling us the truth, we are reminded from this passage of Scripture in Matthew that he indeed will never, ever forget it. You see, if we want to find Emmanuel now and always, we must not look where Jesus walked or where he was, but where he is right here in the present. And if you want to see the face of God, then I encourage you to look at the faces of your brothers and sisters who are needy. Because you will find him there. And my prayer is that together, that you and I would find Emmanuel, God with us, as we do what Emmanuel did, and still does today, caring for the least, not only during Advent, not only at Christmas, but each and every single day. And as we do so, my prayer is that we would do that with the help of God with us. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.